Devin, it's a pleasure to be with you on the podcast today. I have written a book recently called Raylan Goes to Detroit, and it features my father, Elmore Leonard's iconic character, Raylan Givens. That is amazing. And I am Devin Galladay, the author of 10,000 Miles with My Dead Father's Ashes, which is a memoir about my relationship with my father. Can I ask you, because you've written a whole bunch of books, Peter, can I ask, is this sort of your first, shall we say, homage? Yes. Yeah. My father died in 2013, and he was writing a book uh, called Blue Dreams at the time. And I, I remember even at his funeral, people would come up to me and say, you can finish your dad's book? And it hadn't occurred to me. There was, a, there was quite a bit going on at the time. And uh, the more I thought about it, I decided it was just it was a bad idea. So my brother Chris, you know, later on, he said, hey, why don't you write a Raylan novel? And I thought, yeah, that's not a bad idea. Because Raylan had appeared in three of my dad's books, and then the uh, his short story, Fire in the Hole, became the basis of the TV show Justified. So Justified was on for six seasons, and a lot of different writers participated. So I thought, there's a precedent established for this. I can... I can do my own version of Raylan, and that's what I did. When you say you kind of made your own version, were there character changes, or how true were you to your to your father's uh, initial notions? Well, I I took Raylan out of Harlan County, Kentucky. I think that's really where he's most famous for being, mm. and I brought him to Detroit, and he's on the uh, U.S. Marshals Fugitive Task Force. And so that's how the book begins. And then I just told my story with Raylan. You know, it, it, it had nothing to do with what my dad had done earlier. Did you change any of the characteristics of the character? No. No, I kept him you know, much as uh, my father wrote him. And uh, so I felt like I knew Raylan because I'd read the books and the short story and watched uh, much of the TV series. So I felt it kinship. I uh, felt that I, I could step in his boots and put on his Stetson and uh, feel right at home. What do you think your father would have thought? I think he would have been very happy. And in fact, the, the U.S. Marshals that I hung around with in Detroit that have read the book uh, have said uh, that you know, your dad would be very proud. Uh, this, uh, this book is legit. Uh, so, you know, I think for me, that's high praise to hear it from the uh, the guys with their boots on the ground, you know, the guys that I hung out with and got to know. I think that is exciting and extraordinary. How Are you getting nice uh, feedback from the book? Great feedback. Yeah. Everybody I have gotten comments from and uh, just reviews that I've read have all been very positive. I think that's wonderful. When you start writing, obviously you're a seasoned you're a seasoned writer. Uh, you've got seven books, eight books, eight books. Is there a certain sort of system that you go through in, in terms of uh, creating the book itself? You know, in other words, are you one of those guys who wakes up at five o'clock in the morning and sits down and shuts out the world and writes for twelve hours a day? <laughs> no. Uh, I do wake up at five in the morning or three in the morning and think of an idea. But if if the idea is good enough, I'll remember it when I wake up a few hours later. But uh, my typical day is uh, working out or trying to uh, early in the morning 
and then uh, writing till noon, uh, having a light lunch, and then uh, going on till five o'clock. And that has worked for me. I, I like it. Once it, it, you know, I get immersed uh, in the story and uh, kind of get lost. And uh, so that's that's my typical work day. Yeah. Wow. I couldn't do that in a million years. How long did it take you to write your novel? Well, it's it's a memoir. Um, memoir. Right. Right. It, it took honestly about seven years, but I don't know if I was ever really intending to finish it. I think when I started, it was kind of a, a collection of short stories about my relationship with my father, and it kept evolving. And really what ended up happening was there was a point where I had probably about, I would say about like 13 to 15 little short pieces. None of them were perfected or, or even to my uh, liking. But what I ended up doing was I started a writer's group in my living room every Thursday at uh, at 7 o'clock, and their jobs was to bring uh, their own pages, whatever they wanted, uh, and some snacks because I need to eat. And that's what we did. So every Thursday, um, I, I kind of made a pledge to myself that somehow I was going to have new writing or something newly edited completed. And again, it, you know, it could be first draft, it could be, you know, draft number nine, uh, but it was something that just needed to be done. And, and honestly, it worked. It worked. And I think over time, probably because when I say seven years, that's probably not a fair, uh, a fair statement because some of that time I just wasn't working on the book at all. I think probably the last year and a half was really like, okay, this is something I'm doing on a nearly daily basis. I have to say that the memoir reads like a novel. I, you know, it reads like a thriller to me. The uh, the scenes, the, the present, and then going back. It, I mean, it's really good. The writing is excellent, and uh, your father is a fascinating, unpredictable, larger than life character. And I think the dialogue says everything about him. You know, I can picture the guy. You know, without any description at all. Yeah, he is. Uh he's still somebody who is very important sort of like in my brain. I still hear him talking to me. And ironically, I probably have a far superior relationship now that he's, I mean, he's been dead for 17. Oh, really? Yeah. He's been dead for almost 17 years. And so it was, like he's still very fresh, if that makes any sense. I don't know if you have kind of a similar uh, experience uh, after your father's passing. I you know, certainly do. Uh, I have well, first we have photos all around the house. I have his books, and people are you know still asking me things about him, and uh, I bring him up any any time I do a a speech at a book festival or uh, or library or wherever, and. Uh, He's the uh, the famous guy, and he taught me, influenced me to uh, get in the same business. I was going to ask you, you your, your dad refers to himself in the third person throughout the book. And, yes. Uh, what's his name? You know, of course, you've got to wait till you get to the end. Um, 
just he was just dad he uh your father and uh that was that was good there was a scene where your mother had dressed you in uh, knickers and, a rough <laughs> and you got roughed up at school not surprising i guess and yeah uh, often and your father's reaction asking you if you're going to be a fag or a ballerina i just thought that's so hilarious you know and then he took charge and taught you how to fight is that kind of how it happened that's kind of, well. We first we needed to get uh, new clothes because uh, he was uh, he was he was oblivious. Um, I think I mean he he you know like yourself he would get up at five o'clock in the morning. He was gone uh, very often, and uh, you know I was allowed to change. So I mean, looking back, I don't think he uh, you know he would have known. And I think there was a certain humiliation on my end. Um, but he did have he did have a way. He did have a way, you know, you know, it was just a very interesting time. Yeah, he totally, he totally taught me how to fight. I mean, he was absolutely about, you know, hit him in the, hit him in the back of the head with a hammer (laughs) and and, and let him know, let him know it was you when they're on the ground. That reminds me of a situation that I was in, uh, in grade school. I went to a Catholic school and I would go into our town, very unfashionable and, uh, Many of the public school guys were uh, a bit hipper than that, and uh, they'd make fun of me. And uh, so I remember going home one day telling my dad, and uh, he looked at me and he said, the next time one of those kids says something, you tell him you're going to shove that boot down his throat. And uh, I felt <laughs> good, and nothing ever happened after that. Did you shove a boot down a kid's throat? I didn't have to. No. Yeah, well, good, good. I mean... I, I think you know again in in the for me it was the the nineteen seventies. I think I mean I, looking back, I mean I think I think we pick on each other. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I think kids pick on each other, and looking back, it probably was largely harm, you know harmless. I mean, I did. We'd get into physical altercations and stuff like that, and you know once in a while I'd get uh, punched out. But that was kind of a seminal moment. Was when Dad for me, found out and sort of like, I think, I think in some ways, you know, fathers are supposed to do that. Sure. Without question. Your dad told you to, to hang on and not let go, even when the teacher or whoever was trying to break up the fight came into the scene. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's for him. It was like, you want every kid in school to know that you are going to fight. You want yep. every single kid to know, and then once everybody knows, it becomes less entertaining. Without question. Yeah, if it's not going to be a free pass in, a, in, in abusing you, then, then you're going to roll on the ground. And I was terrified of him. I mean, I was terrified of fighting, um, but I was so much more terrified of him that there was like, oh, yeah, no, I will. I'll fight whoever you put in front of me. I, I understand. There's a scene uh, where you, uh, I think you swear at your mother and uh, your dad uh, takes you in the car and he drops you off at some remote location and just leaves you there. And uh, that was pretty powerful. And I was wondering, you were a young guy. What did you think? Well, I was, I was terrified, if I'm, if I'm honest. It was, it, was a, it was a weird, very seminal moment where, A, you know, I think I was getting a little you know, big for my britches, for lack of a better description. And when he left me there, A, I was startled. 
And B, I was terrified because this was without question. I mean, this was downtown Los Angeles in the 70s at night. It was weird and creepy and not safe. And at the same time, there was this the, – the seminal moment was not that I was scared because I think that happened routinely. It was – there was this little thrill. There was There was kind of one of those moments where – you know, I don't know if you've ever gone to a party and you look across the room and there's sort of a, a pretty girl and you're like you're all of a sudden like magnetized by it. Definitely. And but this was I was magnetized to that. I was magnetized by its seediness and underbelliness, which is not a word, and I was magnetized by what it represented. There was a certain odd liberation to it that I had was and honestly still there's a certain thing like when I'm driving through a neighborhood that's absolutely sketchy I am like I there's a hominess to it and I don't know why that is yeah that is interesting I hung around with the uh, Detroit police homicide squad for a month and uh, saw some of the seediest uh, areas of Detroit I think Detroit still has three of the worst precincts in the country for crime. And uh, I went to crime scenes, talked to detectives, and it was really something. I mean, very enlightening. Uh, it was it, it was uh, very emotional at times. Uh, it was uh, disgusting at times. But, mm. uh, you know, these these emotions, uh, these uh, you know, visuals stayed with me and, and helped me write a novel as a result. And it was uh, it was good. Um, but on your way home, I, to get back to you uh, being abandoned there for a few minutes, on the radio, you were listening to uh, Runaround Sue. And I remember that song so well. And uh, I like the, <laughs> right. the contrast of that, you know, you being left out there alone, and then you get in the car and you listen to Runaround Sue. That's good. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a again a, a very interesting moment i think it was one of those things that you're you know you're 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 slowly but surely becoming an adult you think you know stuff and there are these moments that really resonate and that was certainly uh that was certainly a big one for me when you were riding around cuz that to me that is you know like when you're like oh this is dangerous and seedy and disgusting i'm you know, riding around with the police sounds like, oh, my gosh, I need to do that. Is there a place I can go and just ride around with the police? Well, um, how much? First, obviously. Uh, yeah, of but, course. Of course. Um, you know, I think it, it's, you know, it's fairly routine. Uh, uh, newspaper reporters want to do it. Novelists want to do it. And I think the, the uh, police stations are generally receptive. But yeah, I would encourage you to do it. You sh are you thinking of writing a novel? Are you writing a novel? I, I'm not. Well, I have probably 20,000 words of a novel that I haven't touched in probably five years. I may go back to it and it wouldn't be a police type of story. Uh, but bef before we move on from, from this, how much of that sort of like police, police ride along was... You know, I mean, were you taking exact experiences or you're taking more of the feelings and the emotions that helped drive the novel? I was taking both. I was writing down everything that that sounded good, anything everyone said and uh, and, and made notes of the just the 
the crime scenes, the, the murder scenes, the way the bodies were positioned, uh, how people were killed. I mean, you know, every little detail that you know I thought might serve me uh, in the writing of a novel, one or more. So I, I used everything. Now, obviously, Raylan is, you know, uh, originates with your father, but then we have uh, a number of other characters uh, that are new. Where, where do they come from for you? You know, in terms of the writing and then, you know, are they based on anybody? How did, how did they manifest? Uh, the U.S. Marshals uh, are based on Marshals that I met in Detroit, San Diego, and El Centro, California. So they're, they're, they're modeled after these real uh, people. And uh, so, you know, that helped. And then in, uh, in Raylan, I have a, uh, a kind of a recalcitrant um, FBI agent. And uh, when I was hanging out with the marshals, one of the themes uh, was the, how the FBI and marshals bumped heads constantly. The FBI had the uh, the cachet, they had the name, but the marshals were better at hunting fugitives and doing some other things. So it was an interesting situation. So while I was writing the book, I thought, okay, I'm going to use a uh, an FBI agent, a female, a good-looking uh, Latina from Tucson who teams up with uh, Raylan. She's looking for the same fugitive he is, and she comes in from Arizona, and they bump heads, uh, and uh, the prisoner that they are both after uh, is, is found in Columbus, Ohio. So they get in a car and spend uh, eight hours there and back, and we, we you know, get to see their relationship unfold. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and then they get reunited later on when the fugitive escapes uh, and heads west. So it's, uh, it's kind of interesting. I like having the the female she's got a chip on her shoulder for a number of other reasons uh and uh she and Raylan have a tough time together and yet you know that there's affection there you know they like each other too so it kind of reminded me of grade school a guy young guy getting to know a girl you know <laughs> yeah does that ever go away <laughs> i don't think so no, I don't. I don't. I, I think that's, but I think that's an interesting moment to have where there's sort of these two people where they're butting heads that they're required to spend this time together. Definitely. I uh, wanted to ask you, uh, you took your dad's ashes uh, through security uh, at probably a few airports on your mm. way to Spain, I got to believe. And yet, you know, I didn't read anything about uh, anyone looking at your, you know, your uh, uh, official papers carrying this, you know, this container of ashes and no one wanted to look at, you know, something, uh, you know. No, it was it was totally bizarre. Um, I don't know what the the rules were for Spain. The only thing I had done to, uh, you know, talk about the scattering and. Uh, even bringing his ashes into Spain, I ended up calling up, I think it might have been the Consulate General of Spain in New York. I called up somebody and spoke to directly, and I'm like, do I need any special permits? What do I need to do? And they were like, no, just just bring him on, bring him in, do whatever you want to do. So that was a non-issue. Now, when I had landed in Madrid, Uh, I don't remember going through any kind of security, so there wasn't anything to write. 
um, coming or, or, or taking taking him on the plane, uh, they did, like they spotted him. I mean, he probably looked like a, a brick of cocaine, I'm assuming, you know, <laughs> in an x-ray machine. And they did, they dragged him and I squealed and, you know, maybe it was just the moment. Um, but no, I had the, I had the papers with me uh, and they weren't, you know, it wasn't like a very complicated thing. It was like a one or two page thing, but nobody asked to look which is just kind of an odd sort of thing. And I was up front with the person who was sort of like examining the, you know, the, the jug that he was in. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know if this is supposed to be a commentary on the TSA and whether or not they're supposed to kind of at least say, hey, well, we should at least look at that. But that didn't happen. And honestly, it was like, listen, I just want to be on my way. Leave me alone. Right. I understand. I, uh, that reminded me of a situation. I was uh, with my dad. And he was 84 at the time, and we were going to a, a book festival in Tucson, Arizona. And uh, you know, I was I went through first, put my bag on the conveyor belt, and uh, and as I was doing that, I said to him, "You didn't bring any weed, did you?" <laughs> and he said, "Yes, yeah, I did." I said, "Okay, all right." I'm thinking, "Oh boy, good luck here." And right. uh, so I go through unscathed, and uh, my dad's man bag is stopped on the other side, and uh, a TSA agent takes out his pack of cigarettes, his Virginia Slims 100s. Can you imagine a guy smoking those? Well, and, that's a little embarrassing, but yes, please. <laughs> but. So the agent <laughs> is looking at the pack, you know, and... I don't know what he was looking for, but uh, he put it back in the bag, and my father was allowed to uh, to go. And then we're so Elmore and I are walking down the concourse, and I said, "Well, I said, how many joints did you roll?" He said, seven. I said, "We're going to be there for two nights." He said, "You never know." <laughs> that is that is a that is a fair amount of joints for two nights. Yes, indeed. Wow. So when you traveled, I mean, he must have been exceptionally proud that you followed in his footsteps. He was proud, yeah. He loved to uh, appear with me. We had a, a nice rapport, and uh, we had kind of a, a little shtick that we did. I mean, it changed. It varied a bit. But, uh, yeah, he loved it. We had a good time together. And yeah. we were um, – we were at a festival. In fact, it may have been the same Tucson festival, and my father had quit drinking for 30 years. And uh, we were at a table in a nice restaurant uh, with my brother Chris and some other people, and we were all drinking red wine. And uh, my father looked, and he said, that's what I miss the most, seeing you know red wine in that goblet, that stem goblet. And uh, God, I'd love a glass of wine. I said, you're 84. Why don't you have one? So he had his first glass in 30-some years. And, uh, wow. And then he kept drinking. I mean, not, not out of hand, but it was, it was something. And uh, kind of a exciting moment for him. I could see the, the expression on his face, the, the look of pleasure. That's, a, that's an amazing story that you got to experience those things together. I, I, I must admit um, – you know, my father, certainly certainly as an adult, when I was an adult, we really spent less and less time together. And I think, obviously, that's what my memoir in part explores. And I think it's challenging. 
it's challenging stuff. I think he came from a time and place, um, and maybe not unlike your your own father, where there was just sort of like uh, a certain mystique of what it was to be a man and a proud man at that. Did your father have those kinds of things? Well, he was he was a CB in the Navy, and uh, I think that uh, guys uh, from his generation became men you know, at an early age as a result of uh, the, what they saw and did in war, and uh, that changed them. And uh, I never, I didn't uh, join the service. You know, I, it's the last thing I wanted to do. So I think that was a, a major influence uh on my father you know and he, he was always a man he wasn't necessarily a tough guy but he was a he was a man and uh i i get the sense that your dad was a tough guy and a man and a strong man yes he he he, he was a tough guy um i mean i think he had had feelings about it he was also a um uh he was also in the military um, I think they initially threw him out. He he tried to sign up when he was 15, and when they found that out, they gave him the boot. And then he, he re-upped when he was, I think, 17 or 18. Um, and I think there is something to be said for, you know, joining the military and sort of like having a very, very specific set of rules that must be followed. Um, yeah, he he was a tough guy. But I remember getting a call when I was uh, – when I was 17 from, I think from the army and he was like, if you join, I will tear your arms out of their sockets. And so, you know, whatever, whatever military career I might have considered was quickly nixed. So your father would have been how old? Cause my father would have been 87. Uh, my father would have been, uh, 92, 92. Okay. But it's the same, same era. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I, I was thinking about the uh, scene where you and your dad um, got in a fight. Uh, you were you you were older, bigger, and uh, I think you were in high school at the time. You were maybe taller than him, and uh, and got in a fight with him. And uh, that reminded me. I I got in a couple of fights with my own father, and uh, but uh, your dad I think got the best of you, and he he pointed <laughs> to, to himself and he said. Man pointed to you and said, "Boy, that is that's so great." You know, I God, my father and I got in fights because I would in high school uh, I would come home drunk occasionally, and my mother always instigated it. She'd say, "Elmore, he's drunk," and you know, my father said, well, "What do you want me to do?" You know, and uh, and then we would just sort of get into an altercation, and uh, I threw him down a couple times. I was much stronger than he was and bigger and so you know and, and then i'd wake up in the morning and th think did i just throw my father down last night you know and i was you know contrite it was appalling in a way sure sure i i think had i won i probably you know if i had actually hit him in the way that i i had intended in that moment i think i probably would have had uh, a lot of a lot of feelings about having done that. Now that said, I think, you know, at the time when I say I, I'm bigger than my father, and I think I described this in this, in this particular scene, you know, I was five, nine and he was probably five, seven, but mm -hmm. he probably weighed two thirty, and I probably oh, weighed one twenty. 
You know what I mean? I was just like a, a little string bean. So when, you know, when he hit me, it was like, you know, game over. Sure. Oh my yeah. God. With yeah. that kind of weight and strength. And, uh, I was fascinated to learn that your dad had, uh, you know, other marriages and families and children. I mean, that, that was really unexpected. Uh, what did you think when you found that out? You know, I think it was at a time in my life that I was I was living with a girl. I was like 20 or 21 years old and we had this terrible apartment where people were, you know, like there were hookers and 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 cocaine deals that are right in front of the bedroom window and the girl that I was with, I mean, I was crazy alcoholic and insane and not really much of a relationship partner. And so I had my own troubles. So there was you know, at the moment, it was like, oh, is that all? Because uh, it wasn't a big deal. Now, when looking back on it, it really is sort of a remarkable thing. And ironically, I actually have a really wonderful relationship with my sister, Nancy, who, uh, with any luck, will be listening in her home in Batavia, Illinois. <laughs> but yeah, it was uh, it was an unusual uh, it was an unusual moment looking back to find out that I had this massive extended family that no one had discussed. Um, again, but that was part of his, you know, sort of like keeping secrets kind of motif. Now, you've got, you have a brother. Did you have any sort of history like that in your personal life? No, no. I have two brothers and two sisters, all uh, from my uh, mother. What was it like to be sort of, I mean, because your father's a big deal. What was, what was that like in, in sort of growing up with that? Well, he was just a, a regular guy. He's just, he was a low-key, Depression-era guy, and uh, he never made much of a big fuss over himself. And I remember I was at the airport uh, taking a business trip in 1984, and uh, I saw him on the cover of Newsweek magazine. And I thought, oh, boy. And after that, he really started getting attention and uh, notoriety. And uh, and it was something to see. He would we'd go to restaurants and uh, people would come up to him and say hi and ask for his autograph. One time a woman um, approached him and said, are you who I think you are? And my dad said, yes. And uh, but he was just he was easygoing. And, uh, you know, it was never his fame was never a big deal. He did, however, divorce my mother and he mm -hmm. he married uh, a woman named Joan and uh, she died. And then he he was really lonely. And uh, I would say a couple months after he died, uh, I called him up and I said, uh, what are you doing tonight? It was a Saturday. And he said, I got a date. And I thought, I got a date. I said, uh, where did you meet someone? He said, in the backyard. So apparently he had a gardening crew and a woman on the gardening crew uh, caught his eye. And uh, I said, well, what did you do? He said, I rolled a joint, poured her a glass of wine and put on Steely Dan. <laughs> so I thought, that's, that's great. That's good. And he married her. Married wife number three, and uh, eventually they divorced, and he was on to the next one. He was 87, and the, and the woman he was seeing uh, before he died was 58, platinum wow. blonde with uh, 
gigantic augmented breasts. And uh, so he, uh, I think he died happy. I, I'm, I'm happy for him. <laughs> that sounds like, uh, uh, you know, quite a win. Yes, indeed. So where does Raylan go from here? Or, or is there? I mean, are, are you starting a new trend for yourself to kind of keep some of uh, your father's uh, characters alive? No. Um, I actually just finished an, uh, another book, number nine, based on a, a female U.S. marshal on the task force in Detroit, the lone female uh, on this, uh, in this group of alpha males. And uh, I found that fascinating, the contrast. And uh, so that one's done. I, <clears throat> I like to just move around. I don't, I don't like the idea of having the same character. I think mm. it's more fun to, to uh, invent someone new and put that character in a situation. I mean, that's just me. Obviously, you know, Michael Conley and uh, Lee Child and others, you know, are, have made a fortune uh, with their serial recurring characters. But Sure. Uh, let me ask you, if I may, yeah. uh, at the end of your book, the car disappears your dad's in the in the trunk, I think, and uh, it, it really read like a thriller, I think, from then on. And uh, so you, with the help of some locals, uh, find out that it's been impounded, and uh, you go in the impound office, and uh, the uh, you, the girl you're with, I can't think of her name, um, was there to help you, and she's trying to get the attention of the, you refer to him as the uninterested man and i spent a year in italy and i know that that kind of guy who you just you can't move him you know he's he's doing something he's he's officious and uh that was a great scene because the the reader is just dying to find out what's going to happen here and this guy is holding everything up and uh that was good that was really good <laughs> well well you know i i wish that i could say that it, it needed any embellishment at the time it was just um really there was all of these it was almost like your life is flashing before you kind of moment i'll bet where, yeah it, where everything is so utterly miserable and so utterly you know it was one of, it was just it really shook me to my core I just didn't know where I was going or what I was doing. And thank God for the people that I was with that were willing to kind of take the time out of their lives because they didn't really know me. I just happened to be there for an assignment. But they walked me through uh, really a remarkably uncomfortable. And, and you know, on, on top of all of it, all I could kept thinking was is that if I did this thing for my father – I could fix the relationship. I could undo all of the uh, the things that were wrong with it. And so I had so much skin invested in that game. And so, you know, it was it was good that I didn't have to do it completely by myself. Otherwise, I, I can't imagine how I would have managed it. Yeah, yeah, tough. I actually uh, visited uh, Cadiz when I was a student in uh, Italy, and uh, it's beautiful. Your your description of it, I thought, was spot on. It's really uh, something. Well, well, thank you. I mean, I think it's I think it's some some wonderful stuff. So, is it this? It's the same character that's going to be reoccurring in the new so, book. 
I think it's a one-off. Uh, we'll okay. see what happens when it's published and uh, the uh, you know kind of uh, interest there is in it. And uh, I mean, I could certainly do another one because I like the character a lot. And uh, this uh, female marshal has trouble with her relationships because she's a marshal. She goes out with guys, and uh, at first they're fascinated by her. Well, she carries a Glock twenty-two, and she carries a Glock twenty-seven when she's out on the town and uh and she can outdrive any of these guys she's seeing going out with and uh so her conclusion was you know it's tough to meet guys because they're they at first they like me they're fascinated by me but they don't have the confidence for it to this relationship to continue and uh, i found that kind of interesting and uh, i find it kind of interesting that actually sounds like a movie to me the the guys want to see her gun. They'll be sitting in a restaurant having drinks, and the guy will say, "Hey, let me see your gun," you know. And uh, she said, "I'm not going to pull my gun out here." But she was great. This girl, the the real girl, and uh, we talked about food and books and movies and and you know just the things that you'd talk to anybody about. And she was cute and uh, and very. Uh, interesting and worldly and so it was it was good i thought this this girl's a book and uh, sure enough does does she know no uh she was in detroit and uh, moved to somewhere in southern tennessee so i have not told her but uh i will i have her number and i'll contact her uh as if when the book's published and uh, send her a uh, a reader or wait send her the final book the, the hardcover that is a, a very high compliment. So uh, have you have you started working towards a publication date or any of that part? No, no. In fact, I keep threatening to send it to Tyson and, uh, you know, I haven't done it yet. So that'll be coming up soon. I hope he likes it. But I have to say there's a line that your father uses a number of times. and I just think it's so great. I can hear him saying this. I'll be kicking your ass when I'm a hundred. You know what a what a great line. <laughs> he was uh, he was an interesting and an unusual guy, and always had a certain unusual flair for language. I mean, he was just he was a charismatic and interesting guy. And I mean, I think yeah, it was it was a it was a line that I've I've heard him say a number of times. And I'll tell you what, you know, I'm I'm now in my 50s, and it's like totally true. And I can't see that changing, you know, if, if I have the good fortune to live for another, you know, 48 years, um, I imagine that I'll be thinking of him. I'll bet, yeah, with a line like that. Uh, and I know his name. Will you tell us, uh, tell the audience what uh, what his name is? Oh, it is uh, David Henry Galladay. Wow. Excellent. Yeah, he's uh, again. He was, an, you know, my greatest hero, and I hated him. <laughs> I understand. Yeah, and, and I guess that's I guess that's why we write books because we have these stories burning inside of us that have to that have to get out. Right. It must have been cathartic to write your novel or book. I mean, I keep saying novel because it reads like a novel, but. Yeah, no, this is uh, sadly or, or whatever it might be. It, it is, it's just my experience for the most part. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess it's just all a, a work in progress, and I'm going to keep writing. And and uh, so now that you finished this next book, book number nine, is it? Yes. Are you going to? I mean, are, have you already started developing? Do you know what you're going to be writing for for book ten? Because I just have this imagination or assumption that if you've already written nine books, this is you're just doing this. You know right. what I mean? Yeah, without question. I, yeah, I've written twenty pages of a new one, and uh, but I'm, I'm writing uh, a couple of scripts based on a another book that I wrote uh, for a TV series, and uh, so you know we'll see what happens with that. So are you going to make me a promise that you will send out your new book to Tyson? And by the way, for people who don't know, that is the publisher of Rare Bird, where we are both, I'm, I'm hoping, uh, proud, proud writers of. Can, can you promise me that you're going to be sending it out to him in the, you know, in the oh, very yeah. near future? Very near future. I won't, yeah, I'm anxious to send, to get uh, Tyson's and Guy's reactions. Uh, oh, was Guy your editor? Yes, yeah, terrific editor. Yes, Wonderful. he he was yeah. also my editor as well. It was uh, it was really actually kind of a very uh, wonderful, liberating experience. Peter, thank you for this conversation. I'm really grateful, and it was wonderful to get to know your work even better. And keep writing, man. Right, love talking to you. Really excellent. Loved your book. And thank you so much. Hope to talk to you again. Yeah, it sounds great, Peter. Thank you very much. Thanks, Devin. Take it easy. You too.